Good day and welcome to FinChat Podcast, where I interview professionals in the finance industry to allow them to share their experiences and knowledge to the next generation of business people and entrepreneurs and expose them to the world of finance, banking and related topics. Today we're covering uh, private equity in South Africa, personally uh, one of my favorite topics. And joining to me today to chat a bit around this topic is Thomas Prince. Uh, Thomas is a seasoned professional with over 25 years of experience in private equity, investment banking and management. He is passionate about building and developing businesses and people and believes business is a key tool for creating sustainable impact on society. After completing his articles, uh, Thomas joined Investec Corporate Finance in 1995 and in 1999 he founded Investec Private Equity. Until 2010, Thomas led the business in more than 45 transactions to build the business to now known as the Bud Group, which has net assets in excess of 10 billion rand. During his tenure at Investec, he represented Investec on numerous boards and was also a member of the Investec Executive, Executive Group of Management Forum. And Thomas is an independent director of six companies. He's also an advisor to a number of boards and to CEOs. Welcome, Thomas. Great Thank to you have very you much. On the Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure chat. to be here. Thank you very much. I'm Fantastic. excited to be here. Um, so, first off, Thomas, let's start off with a bit of your journey uh, into private equity. What was the process with you finding private equity, getting into it? What was your strategy? Um, and, you know, what was a bit of challenges that you faced through that? Um, Josh, I think by, I stumbled into private equity more than strategized into it. Um, I always wanted to be in investment banking. So that's why I joined Investec at the time. Um, they were a fledgling investment bank just starting off right, really. Um, the corporate finance office, when I joined, I think at six people, I was the seventh employee there. Uh, Investec was still a small place, was in the mid 90s. And I, I wanted to be part of deal making and more the financial services system. And I thought that, uh, you know, um, the investment banking environment is where I want to start. I was fortunate to be exposed to the Investec brand at the time. The investment banking environment was really dominated by older companies like Standard Bank. Uh, there was a brand like called UAL, which was bought by NetBank later on, um, that dominated the industry um, or the financial services industry. We were just coming out of the old apartheid era, and so there was a, a lot of conglomerates that wanted to go overseas. So there was really an explosion in the investment banking environment, where everything was totally internally focused maybe in the 20 years before that or the long time before that now people wanted to go outside opportunities opened up listing offshore buying international companies and it was an exciting time in Johannesburg and in Santa um, so we started I started out advising corporate finance mergers and acquisitions then the market started running and uh, investors started participating in an activity we call the pre-IPO which really is you invest you you invest your own capital into a business, you prepare it for a listing and then between six and two year, six months and two years later you list the business and you sell your shares. So you really, you are the shareholder of reference on listing and you know the small cap market boomed, it was a real sense that the small caps are going to be the big drivers of growth, which it still is, but there was a lot of interest in them um, and a lot of companies listed in the time. They called it the listing booms of the, of the late 90s. But in that time, I realized that, you know, you make an investment, you are involved, but you're always far away. It's never yours. It's always somebody else's company. Yeah. You make money on the back of somebody else. So I always wanted to, to actually own something. So listen, why, why can't we make an investment, own it, drive it, and participate in over the longer term? You know, in those days, one of our biggest companies called Aspen was created um, Yeah, I wouldn't say it was created. Stephen Sartre started the business in Durban, you know. Um, but his big leg up was when Investec and some other people bought a company called MacMed that was in trouble. It had some um, pharmaceutical investments which was huge compared to where Aspen was at the time. So we merged Aspen into that and enlisted that separately and Investec took a stake in that business but in reality Investec could have owned that business. So if you look at hindsight if Investec retained its shareholding in Aspen and never listed Aspen, it would have been a much better investment for it than the investment banking fees you made out of underwriting, just doing arranging, the doing the funding, and the investor ended up with a 20% stake in the business. It sold that off over time. Um, now, 
given I think a business like like Aspen, they needed to be listed at some point in time because it was a big global business and Investec didn't have the balance sheet to, but you to feel fund they it. should have been held? But I think it, you know, if they held that for five years and listed it three or four years later, the, you know, the, the, the profits would have been a multiple. But it's also you know, a factor of where Investec was in its own life cycle. The balance sheet was probably still too small to carry that kind of equity on the balance sheet. And the business and the illiquidity of it probably scared uh, the board at that time. So, from a prudency point of view, that was the right decision at the time. But personally, I felt let's, let's, let's keep it. And then the whole notion of MBOs and it was really the development of private equity at the time. Um, also, globally, the name or the word private equity became known as an investment banking term. You remember the books you've read, you know, the Barbarians at the Gate. It was a bit of a swear word in the 80s. And it was yeah. the asset strippers and, yeah. you know, people that destroy companies and you started getting a name of building, outperforming the markets because of the kind of activities, although it's illiquid. Especially, um, especially a bit of activist investing, getting part of the board, helping develop. Absolutely, and having an impact. And the whole thing of saying that when you buy it, you must have a plan. You can't just buy it and hope that share goes up. Um, and the real sense of ownership and the responsibility that comes with that investment. So. Investec opened up to the notion of holding things for a longer term. And so we started small and with more what we could kind of say overlends, where Investec would take a little bit more risk in a lending transaction, but take equity in the deal, end up with a significant stake in the business and then get liquidity into its investments through the repayment of a loan um, instrument, but then retain the residual in the equity, which makes good for the, for, the, for, the, for the risk that was taken important in those cases to really look at it as an equity investment because you take equity risk. And then one thing clearly later, we were fortunate that the economy grew and uh, um, you know we were successful early investments, which is good because then your investment committee starts trusting you more and more and we were able to do more and more transactions. So first so, off, it first started with some debt financing that converted into yeah, equity. Yeah, so our first ended up with M all these equity holdings that you actually just Our first MBO a, was, oh, an right. was an equity overlend where we actually overlended into the business and we told the management, if you t pay us our instrument back as a return, we will reduce our shareholding in, in your favor. So a ratchet mechanism was then manufactured, and we diluted from, I think, 49% to 25% so in favor of management. So just a simple example, can you just explain that step-by-step block? Step so so like, say you come to me, so I want to buy the company, but you're fortunate you don't have to pay too much for it vis-a-vis -vis the cash flow, or an asset on the balance sheet that you can sell. And you say to the institution that backs you, say, well, let's buy the business together, you put the money in, let's call it 100, but I know that over the next two years I've got 150 of cash flow coming in that I can dedicate to your repayment either by selling off an asset or um, I'm overstocked, I can reduce my stock or I'm over, my debtors book was, you know, I can refinance some of that yeah. um, and my cash flows are growing strongly, that which was not reflected historically. Then I take the chance and say, okay, let me put in the 100 as a loan instrument, yeah. we issue the shares for one rand, 51 to you and 49 to me or 60 to me and whatever to you. Yeah. And we make a deal and say, if you pay my 100 back at a certain return, I think we had a return of, it was quite a high return, so I'm not going to say what return it was, but let's call it in today's numbers, a 25% return. You pay that back at that return, you over the next two years, we put milestones in place and then my 60 goes to 30 and your, your, your 40 goes to 70. Okay, so you, you incentivize the, the payback. Yeah, through but that was just the structure that was equity. found those days. You, know, you find some of it in smaller format, not as aggressive as those, because in those days we were buying a company at net asset value or a three times EBITDA, mm. which you don't really get yeah, today now anymore. Buying a 10, no, now you've got to pay for a business that makes over 100 EBITDA with good cash flows. You'll have to pay five to six times for that. So those kind of aggressive structures are not possible anymore. Um, but it was the beginning. It was really the beginning of private equity in South Africa. So the whole notion of, and we're also fortunate that business that we bought in that example, a, de a deal from an international fell through and the local company, the local parent had to sell. Uh, okay. So we stepped into that breach and we said, okay, we'll take it, in, but this is our terms. Yeah. And they had a different agenda. So they were listing in the London market. So the London and they had to sell some of their local assets. They already told the international investors they're selling off the, some of their local non-core assets. So there was more to gain for them on the international listing than trying to hold on for an extra. Okay, so you do sometimes get those deals you get where... get those opportunities, yeah. 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 Okay, fantastic. So what were some of the challenges that you like specifically faced 
in South Africa with private equity? What, what did you do differently where in the rest of the world, South America, they do a certain way, but you had to do something different I think our market was Africa. very undeveloped. So the technologies around the transactions were still, you know, asset-based kind of finance. If you just look at the, the whole development of the leverage finance market, there wasn't really that when we started out. So the notion of, there was some of that, but using the cash flows of the business and banks funding that as aggressively as they do today and having those kind of teams that focus on that wasn't there. So you really, you know, you used asset-based finance, you used... Um, so where did you get the funding for your first deals? Did you first well, get obviously it from we the bank? Oh, yeah, we were investing. So, so this, it developed concurrently the two, the two kind of industries. The leverage finance industry developed as the private equity industry developed. Um, but you, you, and the you deals. used depositors' money to, to make the deals? Uh, yeah, Which was a bit more forgiving before uh, the Basel... No, it's just uh, remember, of the bank's capital, only about 8 to 10% of a bank's capital is depositors' money. Oh, okay. So you can leverage depositors with 8 to 12 oh, times. You can not, it, yeah. Depending on the, on the capital adequacy, I think some institutions run between... 15 and 25, 20% capital adequacy. So yeah. if you had 20%, then five times, you can leverage five times, you know, your capital. Okay. Um, so then so you, you, you got that, your, that debt your, from your, the rest your. of the banks? No, from, from a bank. From we a bank, very yeah. borrowed from Investec, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, so don't tell your, your listeners that a bank takes the depositor's money and then put it into deals. Yeah, yeah no, I just want to understand that, that It's only a depositor's money, it's only a, 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 a slither of a bank's capital structure, yeah. which it uses to lend. So on the, on the lend, on, it takes money from depositors, brings own capital, it borrows money in the market from the reserve bank, etc. So that's how, and then it does deals on this side. Yeah. And then that's why the regulations state they can only invest a certain percentage of their capital in equity. And, and that only a very small piece in unlisted equity. Okay. That's why you find internationally inter banks have all come off investing in private equity off their balance sheets. They don't own, they don't really own private equity businesses anymore. Banks that still do this mostly in funds. Yeah, because the of that bank doesn't do it adequacy. anymore. Yeah, yeah it's expensive. Absa sold its uh, private equity business. Netbank started now again, but, but it's very small in the context. RMB has always been, but it's in the first rank stable. So they, you know, they are able because of the underlying investments, they can keep it on another balance sheet. Um, but they've always been in, in the private equity industry through RMB Ventures and then they're shielding in, in Corvest. Okay, cool. So let's talk a bit about the process, the, the, the timeline of a deal. So we, from where you find a deal to how you think about it, what are the risk assessments that you do? Um, Johan? Can we maybe take one step back before I go there? Yes. I think for your listeners and the students, just, I'll quickly explain just what private equity is vis-a-vis yeah, please, please, the yeah, different please. asset classes. So. The private equity is really what it says private, so it means it's an investment in an unlisted equity. So you, it's private companies, where most the majority of the capital that's invested on behalf of our pension funds and provident funds, you know, the savings industry, that your coronations, old mutuals, Alan Gray, Sunlum, old um, invest, that's enlisted equity that are listed in the JSE or in another exchange. The, the capital that we invest, we invest in unlisted businesses, so it's private companies. So they're not listed, and therefore the shares are not really liquid. They're not traded on an exchange. They can trade between parties, but it's very illiquid. You must go and find a party to buy that. So it's your, that's a big difference between the two kind of investments is that it's very illiquid. So you only get liquidity, you, you sell your shares when substantially most of the shareholders sell. It was very difficult selling a minority stake in an unlisted investment. So I think that's the big, and the source of capital that you invest in that comes from a couple of places, mostly again, the pension and provident funds. They put that into funds. And then, uh, and that's a fund management model where you raise money from a, a pension fund and then invest it in unlisted businesses, sell that and give the money back. Um, or what we call captives, like the PIC, they have a, a fund which is called the Isabaya Fund, and they um, they are a big piece of our industry. Um, RMB Ventures is a captive fund; it's an on-balance sheet fund, so you know there's no there's no obligation to go and sell it and give back the money. It's their internal capital management. Um, IDC, to the extent they invest off their own balance sheet when they buy stakes in businesses. I think that's you know. I think the listeners will understand that big difference. Is that yeah, and I just want to touch on that. Also, if you if you guys want to know what some of the terms are that we speak about, um, 
please go to Investopedia and Google these terms and find out what they mean. Um, I know you can go into depth and watch a lot, a lot of videos to enrich your, your knowledge further on these things that we talk about, especially on small terms and um, acronyms that we mention. Um, so yeah, please go check that out on Investopedia. Good. So the process of a transaction is really when you have money, you have a mandate to invest it in a certain specific environment, right? So you get health funds, you get general funds, you get energy funds. So people in South Africa, generally, the majority of the funds in investing private equity are general funds because our economy and the economy of the region is quite small. So for you to go and raise a dedicated fund of any size, it's difficult to deploy that money then because you must actually absorb all the deals. In You can't, you know, you can't take 100% of the deals. So the majority of the funds are general. The process of a transaction is then, you would then go towards your, I think teams go towards their strengths or a lot of the time it's a bit of luck in the beginning to get traction in the market, to get a transaction. Uh, a transaction is really where a management, majority where a parent company or an owner of a business want to sell it. So it enters into the market, say I want to buy the company or I want to sell the company and then the management team normally is in a good position to be backed to buy it. And then your private equity investor will come in and say, we'll buy the business, but we want the management involved. We'll evaluate if the management is good, if the business model is good. And then we'll put a proposal on the table to give cash to the seller. Uh, we'll put the capital in and we'll incentivize the management with a stake in the business. So the management, we call that a management buy-in. So the current management or a buy-out, the management stays in. Um, or a and that's where that, that, uh, that earning back um, Sometimes they are that, or they just get a. These days, there's a lot of different structures, so it's it's very okay. developed. You know, there's exit incentives, there's earning incentives, so there's different ways of structuring. Okay. In essence, it's a very nice way for management, if their parent want to sell, for them to get a big piece of the action mm. in the buy, because the money coming in are normally managed by financial services people. They don't want to run the business, but they want to own it and they want to back the management to run it for them. Um, the majority of the transactions come, come through that. When you talk to people in the market, the majority of them will tell you that we'll find our deals on a proprietary basis. What that means is we don't stand in, the, in an auction, because what the, what if you want to sell a business, you normally go to an investment bank or an auditing firm, you say, go and sell the business for me. They run an auction process where they, where they present you with a, with a um, do an investment memorandum on the business, and then they give that out to selected parties and then those parties bid for the business. They select the two or three best bids and then there's a winner. And that's a very competitive. It's place. a very competitive and that's normally finely priced. So what you want to do is you want to end up hearing about transactions that somebody in the process is in a proprietary or in an exclusive kind of positioning because of where they are, their relationship with the seller. Whether it's the management team and the management team have worked for the family for a long time and they said, okay, we'll give you first bite of the cherry, but we want X. So if you can give us X, yeah. we won't put it into a process. Then you can spend time so with is that man. That's price number one. That's uh, price number one. Or where you go, you know what, what? What we do now in the industry, we actually identify businesses that we want to buy because of our own proprietary knowledge. I think, um, for example, um, if you think the gas in, gas industry in South Africa is going to develop, South Africa is very underdeveloped in the gas usage by our um, our national consumer and industrial companies. Um, it's really because of our historic. Um, it, the, the availability of gas. Um, I personally think gas is going to develop. So I'm looking for gas companies to buy. So I'll make it my business to know who are all the gas distributors in Africa, what does the, the value chain look like, where are the critical phases in that value chain, who owns them, what are the licensing arrangements, who has, who has those licenses, and then we proactively approach those owners and management teams to say two things. One, if your business ever becomes for sale, tell it to me, and you then proactively market to those people by your interest in their business. If you find something else, you find the MD, say, hey, did you read this in the paper today? Oh, you so build a You build so a relationship with that management team that they trust you, that if they come into position to buy the business, they, can, they call you. Mm. Secondly, also with the owner. Because a, 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 a buy and a sell is a lot of trust in that, in, in that whole thing, because it's a six month to a 12 month process. You market yourself to the owner say, I want to buy a business, I have the ability to buy it, and I have knowledge of the business, so it'll be in a good pair of hands, and I have a strategy for the expansion thereof. You demonstrate that to the, to the, to the, to the seller. Um, and then uh, um, 
So you start identifying businesses before they come to sell, for sale, and then you also market yourself to brokers in the market, the auditing firms, you know, the business, really the business so that, broking. Because they also, also know who knows what in you the know, industry. Who's going to be so the investment bankers, the corporate finance offices in town, mm. the big private equity houses are always, and also conversely the big the, the investment banks market to the private equity houses and say, mm. I think this listed company should shed these three assets and we should buy them and you should do this with them. Okay. And let's take them a deal and let's go and buy it. You know, so okay. there's that kind of activity in the market where assets are identified. So yeah, and then where do you go from there? How do you, then you make a deal with management and um, how do you, do you get some debt financing you mentioned? Well, there's normally, the, obviously there's first the process of information and gathering and upskilling yourself about the business. So what can I do with it? Because really when you pay something, you must make a return for it, right? Um, so you must know what you're going to do with the business. Because you can't sell your shares when you're unhappy. When you're unhappy when you sell, want to sell, yeah. then your shares are worth less. So what are those risk management and do, do, do well, you look at the market, firstly, you would look at, the, at the, where the business is positioned in its market, the competitive forces in that market. What are the competitors? Does it control the value chain? Are, are there risks in that value chain that it, it has critical dependency on a, on a certain supply or a market or, or, or a, a, um, access to a consumer or, a, or, a, um, or its users, its client base? What disruptive things can happen in the market? You look at the track record of the management team, how long they've been together, their own track record in the industry. Um, then overlay that with the general econo economics, you know, what are the forces that, that play around? And then also, you know, the value creation opportunities. How can you, how can you integrate upstream, downstream? Can you make good acquisitions to expand your reach? You know, because um, uh, a lot of times what people do, they, they do what they call roll-ups. So if there's an industry that's in high growth, but it's still very fragmented, they would buy the number two player or the number three player with entice new management and then roll up. So you pay okay. your, you pay say you, you pay five times EBITDA of a, or a P of ten times for your first acquisition, but then you can roll up a lot of the other places, the market, for a five P or a two times EBITDA because they're a lot smaller, they're illiquid. Mm. You know, you can roll the, you call it the roll up strategy. So you look for what strategy you can present. Yeah. You do your models, your forecasts, you know, what kind of returns do I get and then you can decide on what I can offer. In that process you also talk to the banks to decide how, how high will they gear it for you. You'd, you then select a funding partner in that process. So first round, Investec, NetBank. Yeah, sometimes do you get a mandate from those? Oh yeah, you select a partner. Finance, you bring so. them into your transaction. And they give you, they go for credit approval. You say, I want to submit an offer to buy that business for 500 million Rand. And I want to borrow 250, go to your credit committee. Here's my proposal. Here's what will structure the deal. These are the assets. And then they go through credit. So by the time that you put forward your bid, you've got a credit approved debt, you've got your own office, your own investment committee have approved your transaction or your 250 if that's your and you can make your bid. Okay, cool. And, you and then there's a due diligence exercise at the back end. So once you've been, the people say, okay, I accept the price, yeah, it's yeah. good. Then you do a due diligence on the business where you appoint third party advisors to go through the books on the one side, mm. commercial due diligence where you, you sometimes... plans start uh, getting going. No, it's more, um, it's more your third-party advisors, like the commercial due diligence on big transactions, you use a Baines or But is that to make the, that's after credit approval? But yeah, that's to check your, your assumptions and your plan, uh, okay, to confirm cool. that. You know, you say, I've made the assumption that the industry will grow at 3%. Now, obviously, in your own proposal, you go to the market and you mine that, but then to get confirmation from that, then you start... So you actually get credit approval before yeah, this? But it's always subject to a due diligence. Uh, okay. Because the due diligence exercise is a costly exercise. Uh, you don't want to do that if you don't know the deal is yours. Okay. But once the deal has been consummated and the guy has accepted your pricing, you say, okay, let's do the due diligence now, which confirms all my assumptions. Because I've told you, listen, this is, I pay this price, yeah. and in my due diligence, I want to check these things. This and how long is that? Because you obviously have to talk to the management. For a normal transaction, it's between 4 and 12 weeks. Okay. Um, you know, 12 weeks is a long time. Then it's a very big and complicated transaction. Yeah. I would say probably around six weeks due diligence. Okay. And that's also, you have to talk to management then? Yeah, you, all you know, the auditors will then obviously go through the historic numbers, check the balance sheet and all the, do that. Um, you'd have sometimes marketing people that look at the market and, you know, the competitive forces. You have management, you have the management consultants that can look at your strategy. And you yourself, I, I always say that if you're the owner, you cannot buy the business without really knowing it. So mm -hmm. I talk to the, if I'm a principal in the deal, I talk to the key customers, to the key suppliers, 
uh, even go and see some of the competitors to understand, the, you know, because a supplier tells you a lot about a business because he's got a very intimate relationship with it. The key customers that have been with the business, they tell you. They tell you where the market is going for that product because they consume that product, you know. Um, competitors tell you things because they are in there. The people at the door, at the gate, the secretaries tell you who does what in the business, who doesn't yeah. pitch up, where the relationships are and the things that you don't want to know. So that's the kind of stuff that I as a principal do. But you still need the official documents from the tax due diligence, yeah. legal due diligence to sign off to release the money out of the banking system and out of the fund system. Okay. And you mentioned a bit about the tight liquidity with your exit. So that's obviously part of your planning. Part of your planning is can I sell this business okay. after I've, and whom am I going to sell it to? And it's most beneficial if you afterwards can sell it to a wider market that has reason to buy it, for which for who it has strategic nature. So I always look, or we always look and say, can I build something with the business I'm buying that will, will have strategic importance for two or three other players? Because then there's okay. a competitive environment. So then I can get competitive tension from bidders in my uh, um, in in my process and in the back end. What is your what is your return that you want just on that on the buying price and your selling price you want like so 10 times more money, three money times in money out is, is about two and a half times 25 over 10 years over a five to a 10 year period depending on what okay. you do yeah. um, because of the risk situation I've got colleagues that have just been overseas they say now that you won't get dollar funding if you can't give them a 30% return okay. and three times money back um, okay. so for so the international investors to invest in South Africa that's what they want in their private equity money because of the illiquid nature, they'll probably take less in, an, in, a, in, a, in a, a lot less in a liquid JSE and investment. Do they have any sustainability and ESG requirements? Oh, absolutely, that, that is a, it's a big theme. I think the, the, uh, the belief of, of business owners that a big piece of the return, the responsibility, come, will come out of ESG. We haven't seen it historically, but there's a big belief and a drive. So when you go, especially when you go into mainland Europe to raise money, yeah. And when you sit there in our big institutions, they spend a significant time of their interview with you. What are you doing about the environment, the sustainability? And what is your view? And what have you done historically? And how do you view? But if you, you know, in, I always say in private equity, most of the investments are impact investments because you buy yeah. something to grow it. And, and when you buy oh, something you to grow it, because the asset stripping creation. has really been arbitraged out of the market. You know? mm -hmm. So uh, being able to buy something and strip it into pieces and sell it off and then retrench people, those businesses don't really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so most the market is quite efficient. So if you buy something, you pay a good price for it, you need a plan for it. To grow, and the only way that you can get a return is if you know how to grow it. Mm -hmm. Growth normally means a creation of jobs, yeah expansion of a of a market yeah because so. i think there's more to think about especially in the sg space it's not just the environment the environment's very very important but there's also people's lives and all these there are six six different capitals that have to be taken into account with your with your i've got a conviction josh that i think the thing that most people would want from our president in south africa today if you ask them a job Yes. Don't, don't come and talk to me about how to farm in this. Yes, that's sustainable kind of issues. Yeah. But the first thing is a job. If we can create yeah. jobs and give people pride in what they do, a sense of being, yeah. uh, a sense of worth. Because when you give somebody a job, you give them him or her worth. Yeah. They can then go out and they've earned something and they can then provide for the people around them. And then secondly with that is development. And I think that's what they talked about. in the about. job you can you have margin to develop. Yeah, in charity, I don't believe we have margin to develop. In, in job creation, I have both an incentive and margin to develop. Because if I take you and you're a good employee, I have an incentive to retain you. So the only way I believe I can retain you is if I give you a, job, a career. And in that, I must then be prepared to, to develop you. Because I want the best out of you, you, I need to develop you. Whether you are qualified as you guys are, or whether you are unqualified. If you have a good attitude and you've made your mark and I want to retain you, I need to develop you. So I believe that what we do in private equity is impact investment, just by the fact we affect what we're doing because we own the business. And grow business. And I'm not knocking my colleagues in the listed market, but their impact on the underlying investment is very is through other parties. You know? it's once a year they will engage at the AGM, what have you done about this? Why are you overpaying the CEO? and they'll lobby in the press. Yeah. I have the responsibility of interacting with the management team on a daily basis. I'm the owner of the business. 
or asset policies. We, I'm the chairman of the risk committee. I work with the, I, I set the KPIs for the for the for the executives, or you know, we set the incentives, the strategy for the business. So it's our responsibility where that is going. Yeah, and we've had that a previous fin chat. We spoke about how important it is to set the right KPIs for management. Now, absolutely, that measurement is extremely important. Yeah. So I believe that the board's number, the board's first and major responsibility is to appoint the appropriate executive. Yeah. And that's how you actually, that's why, you know, we have, I think in, in over time, if you look at the corporate failures in South Africa, is because the board have forgotten that it's their role to manage the CEO. And we have these bigger than life kind of CEOs that have got the board in their pocket. Yeah. That's why people internationally are driving so much for independence on the board, which I don't really buy into in terms of the way that they define it, but be that as it may, it's a good drive because yeah. the board needs to manage the business through the management team. Okay, yeah, I understand. All right, now let's move on a bit to the private equity industry. Um, in the t- on the 21st of October, Business Day published an article explaining that the private, about a private market bubble, I think you sent it to me. Um, and I'd found that uh, through all this money going to the private funds and venture capital building up especially in America and then private equity firms taking over those companies um, where there's a lot of money going into the private market but as soon as those returns can't uh, deliver they'll run to the public market uh, to obviously sell off for the liquidity. Now what do you think the impact is of private equity um, in that private market bubble if there is one? Uh, If you just look at the behavior because you know finance is behavior science People allocate their money based on what they believe in, not really what is actually happening, because that normally majority of investors or private investors don't really they follow trends and you know they don't really do the yeah, due like diligence. Yeah, with tech, all the money. Yeah, everybody's into tech, going yeah. into tech. So what has happened in the last while is because of the successes of a Google and a fa- you know and a Facebook and and the like, and then becoming in in the lifetime of the CEO, Apple, the biggest companies in the world, people are very afraid of losing out so that kind of behavior saying let's just you cannot afford not to participate mm. so the reality of valuations and that have really overtaken the people that drive to participate because of the examples where people have missed out and only a few have made zillions yeah. I think that's the one thing the other thing is that drives the behavior is the lack of yield in the international market what I mean with that is that investors generally don't get returns at the moment. In, in the some, public market. In the public market. In some com- countries, even government bonds give a zero or a negative return. Mm. You know, So investors are looking for a yield. And if you talk about even people that have never invested in the private markets, they say the lack of yield in the public markets are forcing us to consider the private markets because there still seems to be some yield. Mm. And it's really out of you know the technology in the market maybe a little bit and some a little bit of inefficiency, but then these things that people come around that you read about, you know, the, the, the Facebooks and the, the Googles that people invest in and they become from small companies to big companies, the unicorns that they, mm. that they talk about. Um, but now so much money is going into that direction and there's this pressure that people have, I have to spend the money. So when you raise money from, a, from, a, from, a, from pension funds, you promise to invest that money over a five to seven year period. So you've got to go and find investments for that. And you compete all the time. So the power has really shifted to the, to the owners of businesses. And we're seeing valuations in the market like we've never seen before because the exit values have been so blown. You know? yeah. And we've seen recently a, a bit of a pullback. But just a couple of them, though. There haven't been like hundreds no. of massive exits. It's been 10. No, but you, you, still, you still read a lot about the unicorns. They might not be listed, but they yeah. still raise money at high values, you know. So early investors are making good, good money. Yeah. Um, you know, with the WeWork failed listing and those kind of things, there has been a bit of a pullback in the valuations. Yeah. But I still believe there's a, there's a, and you're right, the, I think the, the jury is still out with those companies, even the Facebooks and the Ubers. They say, you know, the Uber guys say, I might never make a profit. I don't know yeah. how you ever give a return to your shareholders if you don't give them a dividend. Yes, exactly. I still don't understand yeah. that. Maybe I'm old school. But you know, value at the end of the day isn't only in perception. It needs to translate into a return to an investor. Yes, but let's t- let's talk a bit about those valuations that you mentioned because uh, previously you mentioned that you used to buy a business at two and a half EBITDA, 
and then got higher and now it's five and six. Yeah. But now the actual um, what's happening in America is with these tech companies, private companies are already raising capital at 20 times EBITDA. Or you can't even measure, um, measure it against EBITDA. They have different multiples to, mention it, uh, to measure it against because they actually can't use earnings because they don't make earnings. So they um, valued based on uh, a revenue a multiple like I think um, Uber I think you told me this that Uber and Taxify them they uh, are they value them is like three times their uh, number of rides number of rides oh, and I'll yeah. like, Something like the effect that. of that I mean we're sitting on the people saying that 25 times or a 25 PE of a public tech company is is reasonable where now I mean you Warren Buffett or Benjamin Graham used to say if there's a PE above 20 it's crazy overvalued so what do you think actually the effect is of private equity or even the venture capitalists, uh, capitalists get, getting in first, selling off to the private equity um, companies who are just like running for those multiples, trying to get a massive um, revenue over a massive amount of rides. Let's talk about uh, like Uber or Taxify and then IPO that into the market. And then we just see major losses of these IPOs in the market. We see the failure of Uber, or well, let's we can't call it failure yet, but like the downturn of the of the Uber uh, listing. What do you think of the effect of those multi just going for those multiples, not really caring about the earnings? No, I think markets always overreact and then come back to some kind of a normal. So we're still in the middle of that game playing out, or the movie playing out in front of us. So it's difficult to say where it will end, and there will clearly will be winners. You know, because when you convert something into cash and that sits there, you know, all the new fintech things. I mean, you know, the private the, equity guys won the. The, the <laughs> banks, are, if you just take it from a business model away from the, the things that, uh, where I'm more comfortable talking about, maybe the financial services system and the fintech companies that are starting up, you know, is there's clearly a lot of margin in the financial services businesses. There is, there's huge margin in that. Um, now, clearly, they take risk, etc., but there's probably a different way of doing it. So, um, you know, the banking industry has been very, very long standing on a certain way, and I think some of those interventions will be successful and will turn into cash. So, just, you know, if you are prepared, if you are able to get a certain percentage of the market, you know, you guys were still very small when Mark Shuttleworth sold his company to a very side. You know, it was the biggest, you know, it was a $300 million deal, I think, or 350 million. I can still remember the, the number that he sold his business for. But at that time, he had a 40% global market share, something like that. And he was on cash turning, and you could see in the business how quickly it's going to turn into cash. Okay. So it was a huge multiple, but you could see it. Now, that's obviously the investors take different views. So some of the things I can't understand, because I don't understand how some businesses are going to turn to cash and how significant that ramp will be. Um, but in some other things I can because if you if you if you in a if you you can do the calculation in a payments technology if you can convince the market to to channel a certain amount of traffic through your pay gate or your or your switch and you can charge them this a margin on that where a bank will charge five percent charge two percent and you get that and you can deliver the cost and you don't have all the other costs you can see the cash is going to drop you must capture the market so now you're backing somebody to catch the market you know, like in the dot bomb days, people were backed to catch a certain percentage of the market because then that will convert into earnings. Okay. And Amazon, for example, it was backed to go and grab that market because that was the, the, and then we will convert into earnings. I don't see that in some of the businesses. Yeah, and we'll see. Tech, I think it's difficult because because tech has such a low switching cost. I mean, you can choose easily. Taxify becomes just as big as Uber. You can just download the app and choose to use Taxify. So I mean, that's. Yeah, but I, I think your friend here in marketing will tell you there's a certain, it's difficult. You know, the, the yeah. first one in the market, the history tells us, have always been the biggest. You know, why yeah. SLC failed? You know, we actually have enough people in South Africa for three cell companies. Yeah, that's there's enough margin in that business for three cell companies. But I think MTN and Vodacom had such a long runway before SLC came to the market. They were always on the back foot. Mm. Maybe if the three of them started together. Just, yeah it would have been a different story and we would have had better service in the market than the third thingy. So it is, you know, the people and that kind of behavior has played out historically. So the, yeah. the investors understand if I pick the right and give him enough gas to actually run and grab the market, yeah. he will probably hold on to that if the service is okay. Even though technology can switch, but people are used to, I'm now 
I've got Taxify and Uber on my account, but I Uber the whole time. Still Uber. Not You're because I'm, still Uber, yeah. I'm so loyal. I just have it. It's just I'm in the habit of Uber, mm. and I, I, I know it now, and I'm comfortable with Uber. You know, yeah. so for even me if Taxify is cheaper. Yeah, I, I don't even know what the rates are. I don't even go and mm. check for Taxify. I'm just coming mm. here to die Uber. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's cheap enough. I yeah. didn't have to go and it was 26 yeah. bucks. I didn't have to go and find out if I can yeah. do it for 15. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, let's get into our last section, um, the Q&A of the podcast. So this is just going to be a couple of questions that we ask every guest. Um, yeah, just answer them quick. And yeah, okay, let's see if so I the can. The first one is, uh, <laughs> what was the first ever job that you had? The, f- the first ever job? Yeah. Well, I work, does VAC jobs count when you Anything were, <laughs> from your the child delivering, no, delivering papers. Working in the garden <laughs> washing work. cars. I did a few back jobs when I was at Varsity. I worked in a butchery, I worked in a restaurant. didn't like it very much because I thought I, I'm a student, I was resting my holidays, but I did a bit of that. Uh, but I think the first real job I ever had was uh, um, when I went to the army. I was, you know, And then after that, um, I went overseas and I did various things. I worked on farms and, uh, and uh, um, in a pub and uh, drove truck, trucks around in America. And what did you do with the money you made? I toured. At that you time toured. I toured around, yeah, I toured okay. Europe with that money. And then my articles, I never thought articles was a job. I hated articles. If I could do anything again in my job, I would redo articles because I thought I had a bad attitude during my articles. I think it's a big learning. Whatever you start with your first job in your environment, it's a big learning thing. Um, I was a bit older and I thought, you know, I want to go and be a CA immediately. These guys can't teach me anything, yeah. you know. I was a bit arrogant. Uh, so I did articles and then and I would think Investec I was a very good employer um, t- taught me what I knew fantastic um, what do you love to do in your personal time I spend time with my family <laughs> <laughs> they say I'm not there I'm thinking about work <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm quite active outdoors we like to, to cycle and run um, go go into Africa with our with our 4x4 we love camping as a family we do a lot of that um, we love skiing. It's very, very nice uh, family activity as well. And you recently and moved to Camps Bay. And, yeah, and, and we like traveling. You know, we, uh, my wife and I, we, we love traveling. She's a, if you could probably give her enough money, she'll travel all the time. Um, <laughs> and we, we are fortunate to live at the sea again. So we love, we love the, the beach and, the, and that environment. Fantastic. Um, tell us a bit about a person or persons that uh, had a special influence in your life and, and why. You know, I think... Um, I think my, my wife had a, a, probably the biggest impact in my life. Um, she was always a, well, she is a person that keeps you on the, keeps your north north and is very honest in, and unafraid of asking the difficult questions. Uh, and although she, she doesn't, sometimes doesn't think that she's got a very sharp business brain, even if sometimes she doesn't know it, she asks the right questions. Mm. And especially around the environment of integrity, um, you know, are you actually trying to oversell something or you know are you righteous in what you're doing so from that point of view of a spiritual and a, and a, the person that I am and the way that I think about how you present things and approach them since she had a huge and the most significant impact on my life I think from a business point of view the whole environment and the development of the investment banking industry the investec and its management from the early 90s to the late to 2010, even today, had a big impact in my life. You know, the way that they viewed business, um, the way that they challenged us when we presented transactions. And I think thirdly, the- Who was, the, who was that? The, the, the Investex um, executive, you know, people like Stephen Kossif and uh, Bernard Cantor and Brian Cantor, and, uh, you know, Glenn Berger, my ex-boss Andy Leith, which is the way that they think about business. And I think thirdly, the people that we backed, I was fortunate to be exposed to very good and very, um, I was young, I was in my early 30s, and the management teams that we backed, the CEOs were in their late 40s, mid 50s, experienced business people. Uh, and I was fortunate to buy into good and long-standing companies. Um, you know, Corabrick was a more than a 100-year-old company that we bought. PG Bison was more than 100 years old, you know. Um, and I was exposed to the, the leadership in those businesses and they, they really taught me a lot about how they ran their businesses, the history of those businesses and the way that they looked at it. So, you know, 
in a lot of instances these are things that you are, that you catch it's something that is that you it's caught not taught kind mm-hmm. of you know what you're saying yeah. you, you learn it by being present and and, and, and being attentive and and, and, and constant you know absorbing as opposed to learning um, you know um, being able to give an exam write an exam about them yeah um, so on that point actually I, what was the base deal that you've ever done yeah, we were fortunate to do a few transactions. I bet if this podcast ever goes and some of my people <laughs> say, I've singled out one, you know. Yeah. Um, but we were fortunate in those days that we could buy it at, at, at good prices, good management teams, and we could pay back our own capital quite quickly. And you guys that do, 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 do maths and, and return calculations, if you give out 100, the quicker that you bring back the 100, um, the higher your IRR goes. Even, you know, the times money and IRR mm-hmm. sometimes work against each other. And we were fortunate in the deals we did in the 2000 and to 2005, we could structure in a way that our capital came back to us quite quickly. So the money that we invested came back quite quickly. Um, so in that, in that way, we invested nearly a billion rand and returned probably 1.2 billion rand over a period of, of six years. And that created the momentum in the business and the confidence that there will be a big return. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't say it was one deal that was the best. It was the way that we did the them. Portfolio of the deals. Yeah, that, that we were time, fortunate yeah. to bring back the capital. We didn't. You now today, if you go and buy a business for seven times, it's difficult to repay seven times yeah. of cash flow quite quickly because the business needs to expand. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, tell us about a time you failed. Um, what you learned from that experience? I think the time that I failed was getting involved in things that I wasn't really. You know, after leaving Investec, I spent a lot of time in smaller businesses, and it's not. This is not talking against smaller businesses. I'm saying there's the horses for courses. I, 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 my everything that I was taught in the previous 20 years was on big businesses with management teams, and where there was margin in the business, and then you could move people around. And then I tried investing in smaller businesses. And what is hard about investing in smaller businesses is that the business itself hasn't got enough margin to appoint a lot of people. So it takes a lot of your own time for not as big a return. So that's why smaller oh, okay. businesses normally have a, a CEO and it drives it and it depends on that CEO a lot. Because until it becomes a size where they can start appointing proper people, you know, um, and, and qualified people. Oh, so, so I think my biggest failure was, know. if I say a failure, it was a big learning school for me. But it's to apply what I've learned in an industry where I didn't have experience. If I should have sort of stayed in bigger companies and uh, and having and working with management teams that manage bigger businesses. Okay. Uh, what are you most uh, excited about in the private equity industry? Industry and what do you worry about the most? Well, I'm excited about the private equity as the development of the venture capital industry in South Africa in the last five years. When we started in the 90s, there was a, you know venture capital was only you only got them from friends and family. Mm. Um, you know, the uh, certain of the communities, like the Jewish community, had a very developed sort of system where they would invest in their friends and family businesses as a natural course, whether that was a cafe or a video store or a new technology. So there was some money available in that kind of environment. And that, but today, I think our, our, uh, um, our venture capital market is really developing. There are people that are professionals that understand that industry. It's attracting. It's probably the one side of our market that's still attracting international investment. I've just been part of a where a foreign uh, fund invested 200 million rand in more than that, 250 million rand into a single company in South Africa and venture, which is still early phase. Which is, you know, I'm very excited about that, and I'm 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 diving into that side of the market because I think that's a big growth. I think we've got a lot of talent. Your generation is really coming. You're catching up on you know the way things are being done. Um, you are much more exposed to the, all the global thinking and you can, through your podcast that you are doing and other podcasts, you have access to that and you think a lot more. So I'd like to be, to be um, I think that's a, a very exciting. What worries me is the traditional private equity market. I think uh, the raising of new funds have really slowed down to a trickle. There's very little new money coming into the industry. If the PIC is not investing, then and they're not really investing. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that they are setting up people to fail. And what I mean with that, they are setting up maybe too inexperienced people and they give him too little money. Again, the small business syndrome. They give somebody too little money to build a business. Because in the industry, if you manage funds, you charge fee. 
So if your fund is too small, then your fees are too small to sustain yourself and build a team. So you never get off the ground, you know. So if you're not very, very lucky, and they're taking, they're giving like 500 or 200 million rand to people, that's not enough money for a person yeah. to build a business. And even to fail, it was, but not, you know, when I started, four of the five people that I appointed left after two years when we started investing private yeah. equity. And you need to have, you need to be able to go through that. And in a small business, you can't. It yeah, makes yeah. you fail. You, know, you can't tight, afford it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm worried about the money raising and the money flowing into our industry and the way that it, the old the historic private equity industry is it, it, the current state of that. I'm worried about that. Okay. Thank you. Um, what advice do you have for a student or young professional starting out or considering a career in private equity? I think the biggest thing is private equity is not somewhere you start. You know, it's somewhere where you end up and then you work there. Um, it's difficult to go through a process and say, okay, I'm not ready to move into private equity. So, um, and our private equity businesses in South Africa are too small to actually take people and they don't really do from graduation. So they normally take people in from the from other places. And I think you must, if you want to end up in private equity um, after varsity, what is your route? Is it investment banking? Is it through an audit firm? Is it through uh, uh, management consulting? Is it because you'll learn a skill that you can go and apply in the industry, mm. you know? Uh, and the teams that people are building are not financial services only. They take people, you know, the team that I've managed, we always had people out of industry, people that ran businesses with marketing experience, with operation experience, and we marry them with building a team with financial services skills. So I think that's one thing that you must remember. And the second thing, if you end up there, it's not a short term to make money. And, uh, the funds are raised on a five to a ten year period. You only make profit when you sell your last assets, which is in year ten, sometimes in year twelve. So it's a journey. You know, it's not you don't hear you know you hear about somebody. Oh, I invested in this thing and I made a lot of money two years later. That doesn't really happen. It, you 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 create you create substance over a longer period of time. Okay. Uh, what do you know today that you wished you know knew when you first started out? Um, how difficult it is to raise money. <laughs> you know, when we started out, we had dedicated funds because we could go to Investec and I could fight there. Um, now you've got to go and convince people to put money into transactions. Um, and that's a skill that I, that I never learned and it's a, it's a hard skill you know, to know where all the money is um, uh, to invest. Because okay. you can say I've got the deals, I'll get the money. It's, Getting the money is the hard part. Yeah, and keeping you know, the money. Yeah, so I've learned how to do the how to get the deal, um, but raising the money and convincing the pension fund or a family office to give you money to invest in your fund or in your private equity deal—that's a difficult thing. And I haven't really focused on that historically, on that piece where right. the money is. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so all much. Right, for thank you very much us. for having me, and all the best to your listeners and, and, um, and to you. I think this is great. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I would lovely. like to encourage the listeners to please uh, re-listen to this podcast. Um, I mean, we learn from repetition, um, and please Google any terms that you heard in this podcast. Um, enrich yourself and uh, uh, go Google and learn a bit more about this. I mean, our access to information is incredible in our generation. Um, also, I just want to say thank you to Tuto Digital. Special thanks to my producer, Leka Leka Lakala. I um, would love to hear your feedback and recommendations. Please make sure to leave your thoughts in the comments wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, I'm Joshua Prince. Um, you've been listening to Finchat Podcast. Until next time. Cheers.